My name is Eric Raymond. I'm one of the pastors here, a pastor down at the South Campus. So if you're new to OBC, I might not have met you yet and just want to say good morning to everybody this morning. It's great to be up here. Pastor Pat is in Nashville uh, preaching at Community Bible Church, which is Byron Yon's church, who's been here and preached several times. He did a men's uh, conference on Saturday and then he is preaching this morning. So I have the opportunity to be up here with you all to study the word together. Uh, Alan Slotik is preaching at the South Campus this morning, and I trust they'll be encouraged with their time in the Word with him as well. I just wanted to make one quick announcement uh, by way of tonight. Uh, We begin our study in 1 Corinthians. This is going to be the focus of our Sunday evenings beginning tonight all the way through May. We're going to work through the book of 1 Corinthians. Pastor Pat and myself are going to team teach, alternate throughout uh, the, the, the varying chapters. Um, so it's going to be a great time to study the book of 1 Corinthians, specifically trying to prevent uh, church from being destroyed. That seems to be the problem in Corinth, and Paul shows how you prevent a church from being destroyed. So tonight we begin looking at how the gospel answers division in church. So I'd invite everyone to come back tonight at 6. I've been struck recently about the reaction to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ's work, Hebrews chapter 10. One of those reactions is to gather together corporately, to stimulate one another to love and serve one another, to love and good deeds, as the text says, but that's all in the context of pushing Jesus to the forefront. And one of the ways we do that is to gather together. So do make it a priority to come back tonight and find encouragement and serving and exalting in the greatness of Christ. I'd ask you to turn to Leviticus chapter 10 this morning. That will be our passage that we will study. The Old Testament, I don't know when the last time you've been in Leviticus, or you've done devotions there, or you've read there, or whatever the case may be, but this morning I do believe we'll plow some fresh ground and find some richness in the passage. We will actually look uh, in our scripture reading right now at verses 22 through chapter 10, verse 3, but uh, in terms of our study, it will be the entire 10th chapter of Leviticus. Just a little bit of background where we are. I realize many of us are jumping into a flow of context, but the context of chapter 8 and chapter 9 are that God has ordained Aaron and his four sons to be the priests, and the priests are to function as the mediators, those who bring the people and their gifts to God to mediate between, the representative for the people. And chapters 8 and 9 were all about ordaining them, giving them new clothes to signify their holiness as those that go to a holy God. It was a good day for Aaron and his sons. And then we come to chapter 10. And it is a bad day for Aaron and his sons. Because he starts out with four kids, and the chapter ends with two. Just to get the context, we'll read chapter 9, verse 22 through 24, and then we'll read down to verse 3 of chapter 10. This is just in a matter of a day, this this difference. Look with me, if you would. Chapter 9, verse 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering, in the burnt offering, in the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. 
Now chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said among those who draw near to me. I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Pray with me now if you would. Our Father, it is a heavy, heavy passage. It's heavy because it underscores your holiness. So we pray that you would help us this morning. All of us from varying circumstances that we find ourselves as we gather together this morning. And you confront us with this, this passage to show us your holiness and to preach to your people of your character. So, Father, I pray you would help us. I pray that you would help me. I pray that you would attend your spirit to your word such that it causes us to see you gives us ears to hear You, compels obedience to respond to You. pray this this morning, for Jesus' sake, our Savior. Amen. A quick check to see some of the most dangerous professions found the following. Fishermen. Cell phone tower repairmen, loggers, aircraft pilots, flight engineers. Conspicuously absent from the list are Levitical priests. But I think if such a list was compiled at the time of Moses and Aaron and his sons, Levitical priests would have been number one in the Canaan region. Our contrast here this morning is evident between chapter 8 and 9, where there is a high point of excitement. In fact, as we were singing that song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, all your saints bow down. I couldn't help but think of Leviticus chapter 9, who when they offered the offering that was acceptable, all the saints fell on their faces and bowed down. And then Revelation 5, where that song comes from, before the Lamb, the Lion and the Lamb who was standing as if He was slain, all of the saints are on their face again. So once again, when God's wrath has been appeased properly, and when God's glory has been faithfully displayed, and when His holiness has been, has been rightly thought of and dealt with, then the saints fall down and God's glory shines forth. And we see a horrific and awful contrast in chapter 10. Because God's glory is not dealt with properly. His holiness is not thought highly of. His will is not followed, and judgment breaks out. In fact, if you were to read chapters 8 and 9, you would see over and over and over again the phrase, and Moses did as the Lord commanded. 
over and over and over. In fact, if you have an ESV Bible that has the, the paragraphs, each paragraph actually ends with, and Moses did as the Lord commanded. Continually. And then we come to chapter 10. And you know what phrase is conspicuously absent? And Aaron and his sons did as the Lord commanded. So on the one hand, you have chapters 8 and 9. Obedience. And you have God's visitation. And you have fire. And you have people worship. And then you come to chapter 10. And you have disobedience. You have God visitation. God visiting. And you have people dying. What is that all about? Well, Leviticus is all about drawing near to a holy God. See, God, the big theme of Leviticus is I am holy and therefore my people will be holy. The big thing that they want is the presence of God to be in His presence. That is the thing that believers always crave. And ever since the garden when believers were cast off, Adam and Eve were cast off from the presence of God, God has promised that He will dwell with His people. And that is the promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and all of the descendants always coming back and dwelling, anticipated all the way to Emmanuel. God with us will come and dwell with His people. And we see that in Christ. But when you dwell with a dangerously beautiful God like the Holy God of Israel, it's not something you approach flippantly or carelessly. This God is jealous for His glory. So that makes Him kind of dangerous. Kind of keeps believers off balance. Kind of makes us a little uncomfortable. That's why it's so puzzling to me to look at the what is popular in churches today is all about casual, easy, comfort. God takes you as you are. Anything but what you see in Leviticus. God is jealous for His glory. It corresponds, this whole scene corresponds to what we see in Deuteronomy chapter 4, where the scripture says, Yahweh, your God, is a devouring fire, a jealous God. If God were not jealous for his glory, friends, what would he be? He wouldn't be God. He would be an idolater. He'd be a compromiser. He would be no God at all, nor would he be worthy of worship. The Lord, the true God, is holy, he is powerful. And He affects everything that comes into His presence. God's glory, His holiness, either cleanses or consumes people. That's who He is. One person likened this to electricity. I'm trying to use a corollary. He says, electricity is useful, wonderful as a source of energy, but in order to work with it safely, one must be very careful and astute. Whoever touches uninsulated hot wires is severely shocked, burned, or depending on the voltage, instantly killed. And he says, when a person approaches God properly, his holiness imparts life and inspires wonders. But should anything that is unholy, profane, or unclean enter God's presence, it is immediately consumed. So the big point this morning is that God's holiness requires your full attention. You need to be attentive to God's holiness. Whether you're a Christian or not, He requires your attention, particularly if you're a Christian. And in order to enjoy God's presence, perfect obedience is required. What we're going to look at this morning are four timeless action items from a holy crime scene. Four timeless action items from the holy crime scene. The first one this morning is going to be in verses 1 through 5. First action item. 
It's let the chalk line declare the bottom line. God is jealous for His glory. I realize that's a bit long, but when someone dies, they outline them with chalk. Let the chalk line here declare the bottom line. God is jealous for His glory. Don't miss that this morning, or you'll miss everything. This is one of those passages that makes liberals blush. I've read of Einstein's, one of Einstein's friends trying to actually come up with a way that the, some oil under the earth got connected with some other material and caused some type of combustion that caused them to be coincidentally consumed at the point when they offered the strange fire. Trying to do anything but make God a holy, angry God when there is sin. But it just stands before us naturally as a monument to God's own holiness. You know when you read this that God wants your full attention. He wants your attention. There are a number of questions that come up when you read about people dying in the Bible. No doubt some of you are asking, is this fair? Did God have to kill them? And what in the world did they do? Before we answer some of those, and I think we will just by going through the passage, let's remind ourselves who these guys were. Aaron's sons. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Notice what it says. It says, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. These were the priests. These guys were the ongoing representatives, the middle ground. They were the, the ones that were to mitigate God's unwavering holiness with the people's depravity. They were the means by which sinful people might enjoy God's presence. They were representatives of God's holiness. One person has said that these priests were to be the bodyguards for God's holiness, protecting all that goes in and all that goes out, protecting the tabernacle, protecting God's holiness amongst the people. Furthermore, consider the timing of this. As I said, we're coming off the wonderful scene of chapters 8 and 9, the ordination of Aaron and his sons. A high time for the the people of Israel. God visibly attended the people's worship with His holy fire from heaven. The smell of the divinely consumed burnt offering is still in the air. God is accepted. God is pleased. This is a good day. Of all the people in Israel, these guys should have taken holiness seriously. And of all times, this time, in this context, they should have taken it seriously. They should have taken God's holiness seriously. They're freshly outfitted with these holy clothes to depict holiness. Everything about them is supposed to scream holy. They're supposed to take them seriously. But instead, they take themselves seriously. Let's see what happens here. Look at verse 1. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. The censer. What is the censer? It's, it's, it's basically a utensil that would be used to catch ashes or carry ashes. And they would carry these live coals on it that would be, that would be burning and then they would lay incense on it. Which the incense were actually just spices. So, so the burning coals would then light the incense and it would smell a good fragrant aroma. But the verse says that they offered unauthorized fire which he had not commanded them. And what's God's response? It's merciless judgment. It's tangible holiness. 
fire. As it says in verse 2, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. This is a holy blaze. Where does it come from? From before the Lord. It comes out from God and it consumes them. There's all types of debate over what the unauthorized fire actually was. There's all kinds of speculation. Again, the text doesn't tell us. Some people think that they were drunk in light of the future prohibition against drinking while you're on duty. Others suggest that they went into the Holy of Holies, which would have been out of season and inappropriate. I don't know where they would have gotten the alcohol because they weren't allowed to leave the whole tabernacle if that was the case. Maybe they went into the holy, most holy place. That's possible. Perhaps they got the, the burning coals from outside the camp. Maybe these guys were secretly committed to pagan worship and they had done some type of mixing or blending of pagan worship and the Jewish worship. We really don't know at the end of the day, but this we do know. They had offered strange fire that the Lord had what? Not commanded them. So at the end of the day, they're disobedient. That's what they had done. They had done what God told them not to do. We learned that God is serious about His holiness. And they come out of this high point of chapters 8 and 9. Priests believing and obeying God. And then we come into chapter 10. And there's this echo of disregard for God's holiness. Ignoring what God had commanded and, and running off and doing what they want to do, being their own authority, being creative, being progressive, being disobedient. They disobeyed God's word. I wonder this morning, for you individually, especially if you're a believer here, do, do you view God's word with the attentive sobriety that it deserves? Even when we were just reading Scripture. Do you think about it that it's God's Word? Or is it just a book? A classic? Is this the decree of the divine monarch that is speaking? Or is it just a book? They looked at it like it was something that could be edited not followed closely, not revered, and, and, and they were smoked, literally. Look at the book and ask, what does it say? What does it mean? What is God telling me? He should have our full attention in Leviticus this morning because this God does not change. He doesn't get an upgrade like our Windows computers. He doesn't change and get better. This is Him. He changes not. This is the same God we're dealing with. If the truth be told, I think we might find a frightening reflection of ourselves here in Nadab and Abihu. I mean, these guys were all about the team. They had the uniform. They were up front. They were front and center in all the important meetings. They were involved in ministry. Everybody looked at them as the religious people. However, when it came down to hearing, believing, and obeying God's word, they were morbidly selective. 
think there are far too many hypocrites in churches who have the clothes, the outward gear, the holy attire, if you will, that walk about the sanctuary, walk about the tent, speak the language of Zion. They do all the things, but the clothes just cover up an apostate heart that is already craving other gods, already craving self-glory, already craving other things. Brazen disregard for God's holiness and for His glory. Friends, you and me, we need to take God's holiness seriously. You don't play games with God. This is the same God. And He is going to deal out fire post-New Testament to all those who do not obey the Gospel, 2 Thessalonians says. So He is all about using fire as His judgment. So please don't be flippant for your own soul's sake. Sometimes as a pastor, I feel like in preaching, we love you more than you love your own self. Don't you know? We're talking about God here. He deals with people on the basis of His holiness. Let these words just jump off the page. He doesn't change. Notice the source of fire. It came out from before the Lord and consumed them. The same God that shows up in glorious beauty in chapter 9 shows up in vicious wrath in chapter 10. And previously His wrath was satisfied by obedience to the commandments. Now His wrath is provoked, stirred, and uncorked by disregard for His holiness. Please see that. Let that chalk line declare the bottom line. God is jealous for His glory. And look at verse 2. It consumed them and they died before the Lord. This is tragic. This is a tragic day for Aaron. And at first glance, you might be tempted to think that God is reckless, untrustworthy, unpredictable, capricious, some type of vengeful deity, anything but worthy for worship. But let me remind you that the Lord God is holy and jealous and He's committed to consuming all who profane His glory. This is why it's a crime scene. Not because they were killed but because they attacked God. They attempted to steal from Him. They wanted to usurp His authority, attack His holiness, vandalize the tabernacle. God acts to protect His honor, protect His glory. The crime scene is not God acting on them, but them acting on God. Like what one person said about this passage, if we reflect how holy a thing God's worship is, the enormity of the punishment will by no means offend us. This is what we see in Moses' answer to Aaron. This is anything but a quote on a hallmark bereavement card. Look at verse 3. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who draw near to me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Moses is quick to to identify and resist any potential misplaced anger against God. Sure, this situation is traumatic, but it's potentially a problem. It's obviously going to be heartbreaking to a father. But Aaron mustn't think that this just came out of the blue. If you were to look back to chapter 8, verse 35, God was speaking to His priests and He said they must do all these things so that they don't die. 
He knew what he was getting into. Can you just imagine, just as an aside, just imagine Aaron standing there. Moses, Aaron, his four sons, two of them dead. And here's Aaron with this God that he has pledged to serve with all of his life and all of his family, giving everything to him. And now he stands there in the wake of a realization that this God is really holy and he's just killed two of his sons. Can you imagine what Aaron is going through at this time? And Moses says, listen, God will be sanctified. He will be regarded as holy by those who draw near to me so that all the people will see him as glorified. My leaders must treat me with the holy reverence that is due me so that my people might see my glory. That's what God is all about, his glory. He wants his people to see his glory. It's very interesting, whenever a church emphasizes the glory of God, it emphasizes the holiness of God. And when a church fails to emphasize the holiness of God, it in turn will fail to emphasize the glory of God. And what I've seen, although this is not a foolproof plan, but what tends to happen is if we fail to emphasize the holiness of God, then we will emphasize the glory of man. And it will all be about men and people. So if we want to be a church that is all about the glory of God, then we have to emphasize the holiness of God. And what that does is humble men and women and children and cause us to worship Him. That's what we see here, even in this passage. It knocks you off balance. And look at verse 3. What is Aaron's response? He holds his peace. What is Aaron going to say? Hand over his mouth. I got nothing. You're right, Moses. You are dead right. You, he is holy. And they did disregard his holiness. He holds his peace. He keeps it together. Then Moses calls in these sacred pallbearers in verses 4 through 5. And Moses calls Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel and the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away, up from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them on their coats out of the camp, just as Moses said. The priests were supposed to be the bodyguards, but they were bounced from the Lord. They were treated like the carcasses of the dead animals that are usually consumed with the offerings. That was the whole thing, is get these animals out. Bring them outside. Now, take these worthless, disregarding people that pretended to be on my team and take them out. Take them out in their costumes and all their acting and all their pretending and all their hypocrisy and get them out of here. My people to see my glory. My people to know that I am holy and to take me seriously that I will not be trifled with. Notice Moses says to carry them out. It says they came near and carried them out in their coats. Well, what are their coats? That was that holy attire. Their special things that were supposed to provoke and promote the glory of God. They were supposed to be stamped with the holiness of God, but they were stamped with an apostate heart, so God stamped them with His holiness. And then you said, you just pick them up and you take them out. You treat them like dead animals. There can be no question that it is a God that killed them, that it was right for him to do it. It was a result of disobeying his word, that they should have known better, and that God's holiness demands our full attention. We should never get in the habit of asking questions like, was God right to do this or that? 
We should get in the habit of submitting our minds to the Word of God and say, this is what God has done, therefore it is right, because He defines what is right and wrong. So we come to this passage and whatever whatever apprehension or, or concern we might have, we must just say, this is what God has done, so therefore wherever my mind and His will aren't synced up, I have to trust that I need to submit under His sovereign rule. And whatever gaps in my understanding in His Word, just attend that to His infiniteness and the fact that God will calibrate my thinking one day but in glory. Deuteronomy 4, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God is like a husband who is jealous for his wife who glances at other men or like a wife who is jealous for a husband that goes after other women. He wants to be loved supremely. He is jealous for his glory. And right here, there were two men that were supposed to be faithful to God and they were browsing after idols. And God took them out. Select the chalk line, declare the bottom line. God is jealous for His glory. Secondly, concern for God's holiness must trump all other concerns. Concern for God's holiness must trump all other concerns. This is in verses 6 and 7. And perspective is really important in this passage. Moses, What Moses says must be understood as what God says. So when we read what Moses said, we must be understanding this is what God thinks. Moses is a man throughout the Old Testament who is consumed with the glory of God, the obedience of the commandments of God, and the blessing of the people of God. And here Moses is used, as he is often used, to calibrate people's thinking to the will of God. He is the mediator. In that sense, he is, as Hebrews says, a faithful servant in the house of God. And we see in verse 6 and 7, Moses telling them, don't you dare grieve. Verse 6, don't let the hair of your heads hang loose and do not tear your clothes. These are signs of mourning in the ancient culture, customary for grieving. What they would do is let their hair down. They would rip their clothes. And why not? Why might God say, don't do this? Well, God's done it, right? God's the one who killed them. If, if the priests start mourning, then people might think, well, maybe God's unjust. What, what's going on? We need to empathize with Nadab and Abihu. And before you know it, we have holy days for the priests that were killed and all these other things. Now look at verse 6. Don't let the hair of your heads hang loose nor tear your clothes, lest what? Lest you die and wrath come upon all the congregation. In other words, don't you dare start mourning lest you go down and everybody else with you. You better keep it together, man. connected with God's wrath in the people. We know that if you keep reading in Leviticus, the priests, specifically the normal priests like Aaron's sons, were able to bury the close relatives of their family. But the high priest was never allowed to come in contact with the dead. But here, for some reason, God has said, none of the family will go anywhere near these two. They are to be discarded. This situation is just gripping and full of drama. You know that the the brothers and their father may have been tempted to cast aside their turbans and run among the people and mourn. But God here says, no, 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 no. You stand fast. You stand in your place. You be on duty and you do what you're supposed to do, what your faithless brothers did not do. You stand firm and you do it. Look at verse 7. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. In other words, you regard the holiness of God. Don't you dare leave. You can't leave. You've got work to do. You're serving the living God. Your concerns for the holiness of God must trump all other concerns at this point. 
It says in verse 6, Let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. The point here is let God's transcendent holiness calibrate everything in your thinking. Now third, know God well enough to worship Him. This is in verses 8 through 11. So we let the chalk line declare the bottom line. God's jealous for His glory. God's holiness must trump all other concerns. And now third, know God well enough to worship Him. And we can identify with Aaron. He, he, he could be discouraged at this point. So what we have here is an insight into the loving kindness and care of God. I mean, he should be angry. And Moses should, and Aaron should be grieving, even in the inside. At the same time, dealing with that struggle of God being the one that's done it. He might be a little discouraged, maybe or quite a bit paralyzed. And for the first time, and I think the only time I can think of in the Scriptures, we have God speak directly to Aaron, not through Moses. In the midst of a potential breakdown, God says, He gives him three commands, verses 8 through 11. He says, no drinking on duty. That you need to know, in verse 10, what pleases God. And you need to teach the people. I don't know if, how many of us have had the opportunity, unfortunate opportunity, to get laid off. Or, on the other side, have a big downsizing in the office. And you get called into the office. So not on the laid off side, but on the, on the side where you're um, getting called in the office and you're sitting here thinking, oh no, this is it, I'm done. And your boss will say something to you like, hey, listen, I know we're cutting back, but you, I need you. I need you to be on the team. These are three projects I need you to work on. I need you to be faithful. I need you to get it done. In essence, God says, hey, listen, we cut back. They weren't working out. They're gone. But you need to be on task. And this is what I need you to do. No drinking when you're on duty. Know what pleases God. You need to teach the people. You need to make sure that the people understand God's holiness, that it must consume their life. And obviously it makes sense they can't be drinking when they're on duty. It is important to note that it was when they're drawing into the tabernacle. It's not a total prohibition against alcohol for priests. But when they're on duty, since their job is to distinguish between the clean and the unclean, they can't be a little tipsy, you know, looking at this different stuff and saying, ah, you know, kind of unclean, judgment call, what do you think? They are to have their minds and all of their faculties engaged, discerning the relationship between the covenant people and the law-giving God. They have no time to be in any way inebriated, but they must be focused completely on what God has said because God's holiness is at stake. And frankly, their lives and the lives of the people. You've got to be clear-headed. In verse 11, it says, concerning all of the statutes the Lord has spoken. So they are to know the Word of God. They are to obey the Word of God. And they are to teach the people the commandments. You see the importance of having the, the priests on board here to make sure that they are going to teach the people the Word of God. In other words, I need you on the team, Aaron. I need you to get over this and man up and serve. The priests must know God. They must know God not just to worship Him in concept, but worship Him in truth. And the people must know God not just in concept, but in truth. Teach Him the commandments. Teach Him the Word. So they enjoy God's presence. They must give full attention to this God. There's a lot more to say there, but we are short on time. So we're going to move now to the fourth action item from this 
crime scene. Let the chalk declare the bottom line. Chalk line declare the bottom line. God is what? He is jealous for His glory. Your concern for God's holiness must trump all other concerns because God is concerned for His holiness. And third, know God well enough to worship Him. It's important that we worship God with our minds as well. Now, fourthly, without a perfect mediator, God's holiness is paralyzing. Without a perfect mediator, God's holiness is paralyzing. This is found in verses 12 through 20. The priests get the specifics of their duty, the continued need for them to be on duty and and studying what God has revealed and making sure the people understand it. In verses 12 through 15, God speaks to them about the need for them to eat the memorial or priestly portion of the grain and peace offerings. Briefly, what, what that was is part of the way the priests were to eat food and enjoy sustenance was that the people brought these offerings there and they were able to eat certain parts of it, even the preferred parts, to show them double honor. Now, I'm not one that sees continuity between priests and pastors in the Old and New Testament, but I think this would be one precept that would be good to give the pastors the best piece of meat, chicken wing or the thigh, prime rib. I'm just kidding. It's heavy stuff, man. I'm trying to break it up a little bit here. (laughs) But anyway, they had the privilege of eating the food, the grain and the peace offerings. And they were to be enjoyed within the court of meeting. It was supposed to be even a a symbol of God fellowshipping with them and them enjoying the food together. In chapters 3 through 5, we see this articulated. And then we have in verse 16, Moses, look what it says, Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering. So Moses is coming in, and he wants to check on them. And rightly so, he should be checking on them, right? Last time he turned around, they were doing something foolish. So he comes in to check to make sure they're doing it. And Moses becomes incensed. Look at verse 16. He became angry with them. He says, he inquired about the go to the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up, and he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron. In other words, the two that are left are messing up already. I love the way the narrator puts all of these details in just to remind us continually. The surviving sons carried out in their coats, you know, all of these details for us to help and see. And Moses is upset about the sin offering. I don't know how familiar you are with Leviticus, but just let me give it to you briefly. In chapter 6, we get to see that there are specific ways in which the sin offering is to be eaten. If you take the blood and you put it at the base after you slaughter the animal, you take the blood from the animal and you apply it to the base of the the altar of the burnt offering, then that meat must be eaten by the priests. But if you take the sin offering and you take the blood from it and don't apply it at the altar of the burnt offering, but you bring it into the holy place and apply it in there, then you must not eat that animal. It's to be fully consumed and burnt up. So in this particular case, as we see, chapter 10, verse 16, it was burned up. And he became angry. And look at verse 17. Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy and been given to the Lord, that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord. Verse 18, Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. 
You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. You see, they, they didn't do what they were supposed to do. They were, if they would have brought it into the most holy place, then don't eat it. Consume it. But if it's brought there at the altar of the burnt offering, then you need to eat that meat. You can almost see Moses and hear him gritting his teeth. I'm like, what are you doing? Do you not realize what has happened? Notice he says, as I've commanded. At this rate, we're going to have another funeral. And then interestingly, verse 19, Aaron pipes up for his sons. And look at this. This is amazing. Aaron says to Moses, behold, today they, that is his sons, have offered the sin offering in their burnt offering before the Lord. And yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? This is interesting. Aaron, in effect, says, look, they have offered the burnt offering and the sin offering, but look what has happened. Look what God has done. My sons are dead because God is so holy and we are so sinful. How in the world do I know that God would not have done the same thing to us? Frankly, Moses, we're petrified. We're scared. We can't even function. They're paralyzed. They are in the midst of the tabernacle, these priests, and their knees are knocking. They're scared. Now, some of you might be saying, they disobeyed, Nadab and Abihu disobeyed, why aren't they dead? It's like that. Honestly, I don't know. To quote John Calvin, a man who many people wrongly accuse of thinking he had it all figured out, Calvin says, conjectures, that are questions, he says, conjectures may indeed be advanced, but at last we must come to this, that because God's judgments are hidden, they are not therefore unjust. But we must humbly adore their depth into which our minds cannot penetrate. In other words, Calvin says, just because you don't understand doesn't mean it's not right. To the point you don't understand, you say God is different. He is holy. He is good. But what we do know about this is that this is the first time in the narrative that, the, that we see the priests genuinely concerned for the holiness of God. They're genuinely concerned here. And they're cognizant of their own imperfections. That is, that is amazing. They've looked to themselves and they've seen what is lacking. They look to God and they've been intimidated by His holiness. And now they sit somewhat paralyzed. And us as readers, we're saying, this is what we want. Finally, some priests that are going to be concerned about holiness and broken over sin. This is what we want. And Moses, this walking citadel of God's holiness, looks upon them. And look what he says, verse 20. And when Moses heard that, he approved. That is, he heard what he had said. He heard of his regard for holiness and his brokenness over sin and his paralyzed state, if you will. And he trembles. Now, what is the application for the Christian this morning? Many will stop right here and say, you need to be more holy. You need to be more aware of God's holiness. You need to pay better attention to the Word of God. You need to do your devotions. Now let's close in prayer. And frankly, that's all right and true. But if you stop right there, I'm walking out of here petrified. I'm walking out of here scared. I'm walking out of here nervous because God, if you just tell me to do, 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 God is still holy. And he's still angry over sin. And what is to say that I can do any better than Aaron and his sons? 
But do you see that without a perfect mediator, even the holiness, the holiest men in Israel are petrified before God? They need a better mediator. They need a better priest. Do you hear Aaron's apprehension? Oh, how valuable a great high priest would have been to Aaron, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Imagine how quickly they would have shed their turbans, their clothes, their breastplates, their ephods, and fallen down before the great high priest. How they would have flooded the ground with tears at the feet of Jesus to say, Behold, you offer the sacrifice. You do it for me. We're scared. Jesus, who finds all the pictures and illustrations to come to their blessed end in Him. All the instructions, all the commandments, all the washings, all the uniforms, all the fire, all the procedures, all were showing how unlike Jesus they are. The judgment upon the priest was God's dissatisfaction with the priests that they are not Christ-like. They vary from Jesus. And the truth of the matter is you don't have to be a priest to offer up strange fire. We all offer up incense of autonomous, self-promoting, self-worship, self-glorying idolatry, humanism based on our own self-authority. And like Nadab and Abihu, many of us are indifferent about it. It's only one. There's only one priest who didn't offer up strange fire. There's only one priest that offered up the ultimate sacrifice that was finally refreshing to the nostrils of God. There was obedient life, sacrificial death, powerful resurrection. Of course, you remember, you remember him, that great high priest who offered his sacrifice, another priest that was consumed by wrath, but not because he was a sinner, but because he was made to be sin. You remember him drawing near to God for sinners like you and like me as he was consumed by fire from heaven. How he told his disciples, I have a baptism to go undergo. That's to go to be consumed with God's wrath. That fateful day on Calvary's hill when God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ becomes sin for sinners as the great high priest. He was judged for sinners like me and you. As the high priest, he offers up sin, offers up sacrifice for sinners. So he's The high priest, he's also the sacrifice. And he puts it all together and it's not strange fire. He gives it to God. And thanks be to God, God receives it and is refreshed. God displayed holiness in far more clarity on Calvary than He did in Leviticus. Of course it makes sense that God would consume uh, sinners who rebel against His holiness. But how much more that He would consume a holy son who stands in the place of sinners. God's eternal wrath is not satisfied by consuming two priests, two men. It took God's man, the God-man, the high priest, to vindicate holiness. It took Christ to drink God's wrath, to be consumed by God's wrath, to stand the gap for sinners like you and me. See, without a perfect mediator, we should be paralyzed. But with the perfect mediator, we should approach the throne boldly, to find grace and help in the time of need because He's our access. And as Hebrews 6.19 says, He's the anchor within the veil. 
He's there now, always living to make intercession for you, Hebrews 7. He's the perfect high priest. You don't need to have your knees knocking. You need to have your heart pounding and worshiping him because he's glorious. But if he's not your high priest, you should be having nightmares. You should be so petrified that this holy God at any minute could break out against you and you'll be standing there with your own censer, with your own strange fire, saying, here, Lord, take it, take it, take it. And His holiness would break out upon you. But if you run to Jesus Christ and grab His garment, His righteousness covering you, He smiles upon you. See how valuable Jesus is? As your high priest, as your sacrifice, as your mediator. Oh, that God would open His people's hearts to value Christ more. And if you're not His this morning, that He would open your heart to see Him as worthy. God's holiness demands our attention. He refuses to be trifled with. The blessing of God's presence is secured by perfect obedience. And that is Christ who has done that. This morning we have the opportunity to respond, even to draw near and to look back at the cross through the Lord's table. We have an opportunity to reflect upon this holy God. I'd ask the men that are going to serve us to go ahead and make their ways back now. As we enjoy the Lord's table this morning, if you are a believer, looking back to Calvary, being satisfied in its sufficiency, its perfection, its beauty, its glory, as Christ offered perfection perfectly for you. I'd ask you to meditate on Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. Listen to what the text says. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. You notice, fitting that we should have a holy high priest. Friends, we have a holy High priest. So now as the men come forward to serve us, meditate upon Christ and His, the holiness. Not reflecting holiness, not wearing uniforms, but He is holy. And He draws near to God for you.